Jack Nicholas. Yes. Arnold Palmer. Yes. Ben Hogan. Oh, yeah. Tiger Woods. Definitely. Phil Mickelson. Oh, yeah. Byron Nelson. So that was Guy Yoakum I was talking to just now. And we weren't just listing the best players in golf history. I was asking him which players he's interviewed. And we don't mean over Zoom or at a press conference or as part of some PR campaign to announce a new sponsorship deal. Guy sat down in person with all the players we just mentioned. The kind of one-on-one interviews that are becoming increasingly rare. Guy was a senior writer for Golf Digest for 36 years. It's still a bit strange to say he was. He just retired in November. But he leaves behind quite the legacy. Guy came to know basically every great golfer of the last century. And he also happens to be a really colorful storyteller. If you listened to our Sandbagger episode a few months back, you'll know this. I'm Daniel Rappaport, and this is Local Knowledge, where, as we say every episode, we take a deep dive into the most compelling stories in golf. Only this time, we're diving into the stories of one man, Guy Yoakum, whose experiences interviewing and knowing the best golfers ever is enough to fill a few books, let alone the next 30 minutes. Over a couple of glasses of whiskey, Guy shares his insight into these champions that go beyond any highlight reel or Wikipedia page. We're focusing on these players as people, not how well they hit driver or their clutch putting, but who they were, what made them tick, and what made them great. It's also a conversation between two golf writers of very different eras. Guy is 64 years old, I'm 25, and we touch on how golf and golf media have changed over the past four decades. Guy, let's start with the basics. So what was your role with Golf Digest that allowed you to form these relationships with so many of the greatest players who have ever lived? I chanced and kind of lucked into a lot of it. I I had started as a utility infielder, doing stories across the board, all different kinds of topics. And over time, it put me in touch with a lot of great players and teachers. And as I expanded and grew, I stumbled upon a couple of forms, an oral history form, uh, this my shot form that kind of really took off and players liked it. um, Readers loved it. And so it kind of went from there. So when you would make these requests to players or I don't know if agents were as prevalent as they are now, but when you would make this request for an interview, generally they would give you some good time, in-person time. Incredible time. And that was really the key at the beginning. And I would generally get like a two-hour block, sometimes longer. And I think uh, the thing is, a lot of these guys are older, you know, veterans, old men who always have, and old women who have the best stories. And so they didn't have, they had time to commit to that. Um, It's gotten harder as it goes along. If I've... uh help improve uh, the game of golf uh, and if I've helped improve people's outlook on life and the game of golf, that would be something that I uh, would be very happy for. In any conversation about golfers as people, I feel like Arnold Palmer is an appropriate place to start. Palmer was known as the ultimate people person beloved by his competitors, fans, basically everyone involved in the game of golf. You don't get the nickname The King without being hugely popular. And Guy spent a bunch of time with Arnold Palmer. 
He'd visit him in his native Latrobe, Pennsylvania, and he also went down to see him in his adopted home of Orlando. One morning, I walked in to see Arnold, and I, it's like a nine o'clock meeting, and I came in, and he said, have you had breakfast yet? And I go, well, yeah, I grabbed a, you know, some toast and a, and a cup of coffee and all that. And he said, well, you know, and he looked at me, he said, you really look like you could use something to eat. And he reached out, you know, he kind of felt my arms and all that. And he said, we really need to get you something to eat. And took me down to the clubhouse restaurant at, at Bay Hill. And, you know, it was just, he just gave you this feeling that he cared. And he looked you in the eye and the way he would squeeze your hand, I know that's sort of trite to say that he, that people person would be the first thing uh, to come, come to mind. But he loved people and he respected everybody. He respected writers. He knew you guys had a job to do and he, he understood your, your place in the game. He also knew that the writers made him and that he was in part sort of a media creation. It's interesting what you say about guys realizing back then that they needed the media because those were the guys who wrote the story. They were the, they were their portal to the world. It feels like it's a little bit different these days because of social media. It feels like these guys can sort of bypass a lot of the time the media and they can kind of craft their own narrative and craft their own message and release that to the masses. It, it doesn't feel like the players need us as much as they used to. Well, they don't need you as much. And that's the bottom line. And it's a, a sobering reality. I'm going to set myself with the hill here. So my, my body, my shoulders, everything is with the hill. I'm going to come from underneath and I'm just going to flip it back with my hands. Oh, come on, baby. So speaking of guys who have made use of social media, how about Phil Mickelson? Uh, he's kind of like the modern day Arnold Palmer, I guess, in a sense. I know you wrote a book with him. So when was the first time you and Phil met? He was an incoming freshman at Arizona State, and uh, to be honest, I'd, I'd hardly heard of him. That's kind of wild to me that you didn't know who Phil Mickelson was, um, because I have to think he was one of the best juniors in the country, if not the best. And today, because of AJGA circuit and because of Instagram, we know who all the best juniors in the country are. We're aware of them. All he was was sort of agate type in our year-end listing of the top 10 ranked junior golfers in America. But his coach, I was covering some college golf at that time, and his coach, Steve Loy, uh, called me. And he said, you know, I got this kid coming in here who's pretty special. Um, the next time you're out here, call me, and I'll hook you up with him. You really got to take a look at this kid. And I did. I was in Scottsdale and called Steve, and he he said, yeah, Phil will meet you. Uh, I've set up a game for you guys at Troon Country Club. What an impression he made. I mean, you knew he was sort of this one-off genius kid. Uh, the stuff he could do. The best putter who ever lived was 19-year-old Phil Mickelson. Wow, that's a very bold claim. You don't, you don't think, you think, you think 19-year-old Phil Mickelson is a better putter than 2001 Tiger Woods? Yes. Uh, I, I'm just saying, there was a genius about him, and his confidence was just unbelievable. This is right after he turned pro, because I kind of became friends with Phil, and I would stay with him when I would, when I would go out to Arizona, and he had a, he had a condo. It was his first place that he bought. We would just hang around his condo, and talk. He wanted to know about everything. He, he, he was really interested in the Kennedy assassination. 
Uh, it would be deep space, telecommunications, and he, it didn't matter what the subject was. He loved card magic and doing card tricks. He just had this really fertile mind. But as we would talk, and I'm just sitting on the couch and Phil would be up pacing and be restless, he would reach over and he would grab this Ping Elwich. He still played Ping at this time. And Phil would, while he would talk, I, he didn't even really know he was doing this, but I was watching him. He would just plop a ball down and he would flick it with one hand with this wedge. He would flick it off and it would pop straight up in the air. This is off a marble floor, almost straight up in the air. It would just kind of go by his left pocket and he would reach with his other hand and catch it and then throw it down and do it again. And tell me more about Lee Harvey Oswald. You know, he would say, so we would do this and he did it, I counted, he did this nine times in a row uh, before he finally uh, drop kicked one or, or thinned one. People don't know this now, but Phil was regarded at that time like he was gonna be the next Nicholas. That was the word on this guy. I mean, nobody could beat him. Funny that you mentioned that because I think one of the underrated storylines is how much Tiger really stole his thunder. You know, because Phil Phil was first, right? Phil won all those U.S. amateurs and and he won all those NCAAs. And like you said, he was the next Nicholas. And then this guy who's even more hyped comes up just a couple years later. I think it shocked Phil uh, when Tiger came along. I, I Phil, I think things kind of came easy for him. I mean, he just had so much talent. And I just, it just the way Phil's attitude was, it just sort of seemed like pure inertia would carry him to greatness. But Tiger came along and it changed Phil. I mean, you, when I would see him, uh, the, just the look in his eye was a little bit different. It was like he knew that this was going to be different and it was going to be harder. I've always figured that why go to a tournament if you're not going there to try and win? There's really no point in even going. Um, that's the attitude I've had my entire life, and that's the attitude I will always have. When our conversation shifted to Tiger Woods, Guy actually had more questions than answers. He suggested I might know Tiger better than he did. I'm Golf Dietist as a Tiger writer, and Tiger's been generous to us with time and access. But when Guy was covering Tiger in the early stages of his career, it was a completely different dynamic. At that time, you know, it, I, Tiger was... He's really changed. I, I think at that time, and really for the first 20 years of his career, really, I always felt he was inaccessible, not a particularly good interview. He, he just wouldn't give you any daylight. He was the master of the, of the non-answer answer. He was not expansive. And, and it's just un, most unbelievable story in sports is you just didn't know him. So you don't think any of the journalists had had a relationship with him like you said you had with Trevino or Nicholas? It, was, it wasn't just you. It was like no one was on that level with him. None of that. And it was, it was disheartening at that time. He knew me well enough to let me write his book, you know, his instruction book. Uh, myself and Pete McDaniel uh, wrote that, uh, How I Play Golf. We ghosted that for Tiger. But even with that, you know, I never felt like I was in. And I see him in these interviews, and I see the, the warmth and the expressiveness and the outgoingness, which I'd love to hear how he's doing this with you. And it just looks, it just seems like a magic trick, you know, the way that he's 
transformed himself. And he's, you know, he's saying hello to the world, really. Um, 25 years after, he said hello world. We did a story, the, the untold stories of Tiger Woods uh, for the magazine. And I was talking to Billy Foster, who was a, a longtime caddy on the tour. Um, he caddy for Seve and Lee Westwood and a bunch of other guys. And he actually filled in as Tiger's caddy uh, for the President's Cup in Virginia. And he tells the story about, you know, we're walking from the putting green to the first tee. And it's just mania. People screaming their face off, screaming at him like crazy. And he said it was, you know, my first time feeling like I was inside that. You see it from a distance, but it's different when you're walking with the guy and, and you're basically seeing all these people look at him and grab at him. And he says they got to the first tee and he said to Tiger, Tiger Woods, you might be the best athlete on planet Earth. You could have any woman in the world, but I wouldn't trade shoes with you for one day. And Tiger, and Tiger said to him, you know what? Thanks for saying that, Billy. That's why I don't play very much. And, and that really stuck with me. You know, that will erode a person. It takes so much energy, you know, uh, to do that, that in a way it almost was predictable um, that he would fall. You know, I think he tried his very best to be a good person early on, but it, he, he just lived in this shell, this kind of this bubble. If you're going to gamble on golf, you may as well do it right. And for any golf fan who's curious about betting on golf but hasn't gotten serious about it, we have the podcast for you. Be Right is Golf Digest's weekly gambling podcast featuring the latest PGA Tour intel and picks from an expert panel that is up nearly 300 units this season. That's a gambling term, by the way. With thoughts from some of fantasy sports' brightest minds and even an anonymous tour caddy at our side, we've done our best to turn betting on golf into a science to help you make money off golf. While we can't promise that you'll come out ahead every week, we can guarantee you'll be well-informed and entertained along the way. So stop doing golf wagers wrong and join us on Be Right. Were there any of your majors that you wanted? It, it, I don't remember you as being really a come-from-behind player, per se. You weren't like Arnold making charges on Sunday. Were any of your majors big come-from-behind? This one. That's about it, huh? No, I think... Uh, well, the one you're talking about at Pebble Beach with Watson where he chipped in, that was what Jackie was talking about a minute ago. Mm -hmm. I almost won that. So let's talk about the guy that Tiger's always compared to, uh, Jack Nicklaus. He was amazing. When you, when you go down, uh, Jack just doesn't invite you to his office. He'll probably, like, invite you to his home. And while you're there, Barbara Nicholas will bring out snacks. Jack is just so laid back. And he will talk about anything. I mean, Jack just, uh, uh, oh my gosh, he would tell about how much beer he drank when he was at Ohio State. He was, he would talk about, he just loved butter brickle ice cream and eating raw cookie dough, you know, that before Barbara could get it in the oven. And he could be quite frank, you know, in his assessments of other players. It was phenomenal to be with him. Yeah, but that's the old man, Nicholas. That's like the, the Jack that me and my friends know, the He's the honorary starter at the Masters who, who has nice things to say about everyone. But I'm curious about like a young, in-his-prime Jack Nicklaus. I, I have to think he wasn't so nice back then. He, he must have had like some sort of killer instinct to win 18 majors. 
he knew he was the best. I mean, Tom Weiskopf's old line was that uh, Jack knew he was going to beat you. You knew he was going to beat you. And Jack knew that you knew he was going to beat you. And it was. When he came onto a, a range, when he showed up, there was something in his stride, in his posture, the way he would stand on the first tee, that it was it was much like a tiger intimidation. Every bit as strong, but in, in a way, it was just a little more subtle. Tom Weiskopf said that when you just saw Jack across the first tee, he said it felt like you were trying to empty the Pacific Ocean with a teacup. I was at the Masters a couple weeks ago, and I remember Dustin Johnson, he had a two-shot lead um, going into the final. No, he had a four-shot lead going into the final day. And he's walking onto the range, and Rory McIlroy, I think he was five or six back. So, I mean, he's not likely to win, or maybe he was eight back. I don't remember. But, it, you know, it's not impossible. He could have shot 64, and something could have happened. And I remember Rory turned around as Dustin was walking by, and he said, good plan. Keep it up. You know, and I just feel like that, that wouldn't really happen back in those days. That's right. There was things were less chummy back then. It was, it was, it was just a harder, flintier time. Um, there wasn't as much money in there, especially if you weren't, like, winning all the time. When they would play against each other, it was more personal, it seemed like. Like, I want to beat you. I want to beat you, and I'm going to dominate you. I'm going to master you. It wasn't just a battle of old man par. There was a lot of ego, and it would be it, the way that it was expressed there was maybe a little more gamesmanship back then. I mean, Seve Ballesteros was brutal with, with gamesmanship. Incident with uh, Chip Beck and, uh, and uh, Paul Isinger, and uh, they were three up, and uh, we called the referee, and uh, you know, the referee say one thing, uh, Chip Beck say another thing, Isinger say another thing, and then all of a sudden, you go and say, and say, okay, okay, let's go and play. We're going to beat these guys. What would Seve do? I hate to say the word awful. You think about Seve because he was so great and meant so much to the game. But, you know, through the years talking to these guys, Curtis Strange, Larry Nelson, these guys who played against him, they yeah. said he was the worst. I mean, literally coughing on your backswing. No way. Yeah, rollout starts. Uh, which means like right when you go to begin your downswing, Seve is in your field of vision with his legs crossed. And right when you begin your downswing, he uncrosses his legs to start to walk. And he would do a million things like that. He would make you, he would push guys around. He would make them mark their ball, move your mark over here. You, he would determine who's away. You know, I will go first. You know, he would... He just had a way about him that it was very much a mental thing. I have never seen fairways this narrow in my life. I, I, I think I think that the man that was mowing had one eye or something. You know? <laughs> I'm supposed to be one of the straightest hitters in the world. I've hit one fairway all week. Let's talk about Lee Trevino. Here's a guy who I feel like would have been a bigger star if he was playing today than he was in his heyday because in today's 24-7 media environment, his personality really would have shown through. You know, the Twitter and being mic'd up. People probably couldn't get enough of this guy. They'd think, oh, he's hilarious. Not only hilarious, it was a combination of, of, of personality and charisma 
and then a game, a golf game that is just, uh, that was really amazing. I, I don't know how else to put it. He would regrip the club during the swing. He would talk while he was actually hitting the golf ball. He was a genius with that. And then, of course, his personality. When you were with him, you just, he's the best interview in the world. Uh, you just kind of like wind him up and watch him go. I mean, next thing you know, like, like Lee would be telling you how to win a fist fight. You ever get in a fight? Well, if you're little, get him on, get in close. If you're tall, stay away. Get him on the ground. Always get the first punch in. He would just go on and on with stuff like that and just uh, weird physiology. He got 28 teeth crowned without Novocaine. Because he just, he, he was too tough for it or what? He just had a high pain threshold. Uh, he just seemed to be made of different stuff than most, most humans. You know, his, his story, he talked about, you know, he grew up poor. He dug it out of the ground and he just, uh, he's the one guy that, you know, Nicholas couldn't intimidate him. Nobody could intimidate Lee Trevino. Trevino and Guy became close over the years, when Guy's three-year-old daughter was diagnosed with a brain tumor, which prevented Guy from traveling far from his home in Connecticut. Trevino invited him to a house he had in Weathersfield, Connecticut, for an interview. So Guy sat down and started to ask his first question, something about golf, but Trevino wanted to talk about something else. He reached over, interrupted me, hit stop on my voice recorder, and he said, Listen, I hear your daughter's sick. Is that right? And I go, well, yeah, she is. I didn't want to bum you out, tell you about that. He listens, he goes, cancer, right? And I go, yeah. He said, listen, if, you get, if this gets worse, you call me, and I will make one call to St. Jude Children's Hospital. And I go, well, who would you call there? He said, listen, man, I won Memphis three times. I won the St. Jude Memphis Classic three times. No, you, you don't want to know how much money I've given them over the years. I'll make one phone call, and if they don't blitz your daughter in there, they've lost me, and I promise you that. And, you know, God, it just made me, God, I just started crying. It was, he gave me a big hug, you know, and he, he patted me, and he said, it's okay. He's like holding me like a little brother. He said, don't worry, we'll get her better. It'll be okay, you know, so... It's personal, you know, I, I love that man. So for all the people that Guy got to know on that super personal level, there was always one man that he wanted to sit down with, like his white whale, so to speak, and that was Ben Hogan. But after years of trying, Guy finally got a hold of Hogan in 1991 for a sit-down interview just after the Colonial Tournament in Fort Worth. I went and bought a blazer just for the occasion. I didn't have one with me. I was just down covering a golf tournament and bought a blazer, told everybody at the office, you know, when I called on the phone to tell them I was doing this, nobody could believe it. Dan Jenkins said, why the hell is he seeing you? And so I went, I went over to his office there on Pafford Street and uh, I was there at nine o'clock sharp. And uh, Doxy Williams said, you know, Mr. Hogan's running a little late. He just got here and he needs his cup of coffee. And I, I said, okay. So I went into this vestibule and I'm waiting. I'm looking at these pictures on the wall and I'm just scared. You know, I'm, I'm nervous. This guy's my hero. He's everybody's hero. And I just hear this, I guess he crept up on me like a cat because 
this voice kind of boomed in my ear. He said, are you guy? And, and I turned around and my foot, I'm a, I'm, my face is a foot away from Ben Hogan. And I'm looking into those blue blades, you know, those eyes of his and just his presence. And he had his hand out and I shook his hand and I choked. I, I, I really did. It was such a terrible interview. Wait, you just, you, just, you just blew it? I just totally blew it. I was just in awe of it. It was too big, okay? It was like the weight of it. And, and I'm in his office, and I would sit in this chair, and the seat part of it was tilted slightly downward. And I think that this seat was waxed because I kept sliding forward and then reaching up to pick myself upright in this thing. And it was unnerving. You would lose your train of thought because you would sink in and slip down there and gather yourself. And And I looked up at Hogan. I looked at Hogan, you know, 10 minutes in. I'm saying like, what is with this chair? And he just looked at me and smiled like, like it was this secret weapon he had to keep people off balance. But it was amazing, and he signed a book for me. And as I was leaving, Ben Crenshaw was coming in, and I, and I can always say I did it. The six-shot lead with which he began this day, an ever-increasingly distant memory. One guy I want to talk about is Greg Norman. I, I feel like he's a guy who his accomplishments might be a bit underappreciated or undervalued, at least today, because all we seem to think about is the heartbreak. I mean, this guy was number one in the world for a really long time, but when we talk about Norman, it seems like the conversation always skews to losing. Do you think that wore on him throughout his career? I think it did, and I always thought he was in a little bit of denial about it, in a way. He didn't want to really confront, you know, what was really... The issue, and I figured I'm gonna. I got to a point. I said I got to drill down on this. So eventually, Guy got a hold of Norman's people, who told him he could have a two-hour interview, so long as he could travel to Anguilla to do it. Norman was building a golf course out there, and that's where he wanted to do the interview. So Guy flew out, and I went out on this golf course, and and Norman is out. He's in his wearing his Wellington boots, and he's out doing this stuff. And finally, my time is I get my interview. So we go, we go in and we start this. And he's wonderful in this interview. He's telling me about dreams that he's had. He's, he's telling me about the time he's almost in a helicopter crash, how he got the Benz deep sea diving. Uh, he's telling me how to never mess with a kangaroo. If you're ever in Australia, they'll tear you apart with their toenail on their hind feet. He's really kind of good on this. Is it's like, this is fantastic. Well, when we got to the one hour mark, and there's two hours, now, you know, I think he's, he can tell that I'm kind of sharpening my knives. And, and I'm ready to ask him about some of these heartbreak things that he had. And at that one hour mark, in comes a guy, and one of his associates, and he said, Greg, they got a problem out on the fifth hole. You've really got to come and look at this. And Norman just said, Guy, nice meeting you, but first things first, I've got to go do this. Enjoyed having you. Have a nice day. And I just had the feeling that Norman told his guy, after I've been there for one hour, 
Come and get me. You don't. You don't think there was actually a uh, problem on the fifth fairway? <laughs> no, I, I. I don't. It was choreographed. Okay, wrapping up here, I want to do some superlatives. Best and most. Okay? So, here we go. Best player not named Tiger Woods or Jack Nicklaus. Lee Trevino. Really? Well, you're talking player. Geez, you know, this free association thing. But when you're talking game, the best player, you're talking a blend of course manager. You're talking a, a, a mechanical excellence. You're talking about this blend of art and science. A guy, the rhythm of a round. Uh, the fact that, you know, Trevino, he was, he was just a wonderful at that. Best interview. I feel like you're going to say Lee Trevino again. It's got to be John and Miller. I, I spent hundreds of hours with John over the years. I, I ghosted his column, later wrote, a, wrote his book. And there wasn't a time when I was with him that he didn't bring me out of my chair like five times in the course of two hours uh, with some really incisive, insightful uh, comment on, on anything about golf. Smartest player you ever came across. Just a name. Tom Watson. Nicest player you ever came across. Kindest. Larry Nelson. Least nice. I feel like you can say this now that you're retired. Oh, jeez. Oh, man, I'm really bad on worse. Uh, Mac O'Grady was a tough cookie. Uh, if you don't know who he is, look him up. The best shot you ever saw with your own two eyes. David Duval, first round of a tournament of champions at La Costa. He's got 250 to a, a pin, and it's on a little shelf. And he hit a three-wood. And it was just, I'd just never seen a golf struck like that. David Duvall was great in, in, in his best. Oh, my God, could he hit a golf ball. He was so good. Best round of golf you watched in person? Corey Pavin's final round at Shinnecock, uh, the U.S. Open in 1995. Um, I was writing a book with Corey Pavin, um, um, and I knew this was going to happen, so I followed him. And, and you know, just his toughness, his, uh, the way he hung in there, and he won that 95 U.S. Open, beat Greg Norman, you know, who finished, who finished second. And his tenacity, uh, he, was, he was wonderful. That forward he hit on the last hole, um, brilliant shot, you know, hit it six feet. He was good. That was a really special round of golf. Guy, we could do this all day. I could ask you about different players uh, and different stories, and, and we would be here for hours. Call me anytime. My last day at Golf Digest was on November 10th. I'm, I'm easing into retirement, uh, you know, so... So, geez, I didn't think anybody would call me, like, to ever look back or, or just to, to talk about stuff. I, you know, I thought it would be gone and maybe forgotten. I, I love talking about them. Who wouldn't, you know, to, as, uh, as the writer Al Barco said, who doesn't love re-sniffing the effulgence of bygone roses? Local Knowledge is produced by Greg Gottfried with editorial guidance from Sam Weinman. The music for today's episode is called Auto Wash Chan Lange by Lobo Loco. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to Local Knowledge wherever you get your podcasts and leave a positive review. It makes a big difference. Thank you.